Amen. You may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles, or you can look on the insert. I have the verses that will be our focus this morning. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, with verse 12, taking the balance of our focus today. As you know by now, Isaiah 53 is the Christological magnum opus of the Old Testament prophets. There's no passage in the Old Testament that is more clear about Christ than Isaiah chapter 53. Written 700 years before Christ came to earth, yet it describes his life, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his intercession on our behalf. And that last feature, his intercession, that will be our focus. The first five sermons from Isaiah 53 I put under the umbrella of our suffering servant, part one through five. Today, although we're still in Isaiah 53, we're looking primarily at verse 12, and it would be better to call this our interceding servant. It recounts for us what Jesus does after he is exalted at God's right hand, what he's doing now. Uh, Often we wonder, what is Christ about now? What is he doing now? And we see that alluded to in this passage, and then I'll take you to a few other places in Scripture where we get more clarity about what is called Christ's session at God's right hand until he comes again. So here as I read God's holy word, I'll start at verse 10 of Isaiah 53 for context. We'll recap a bit of what's in these first two verses of the last three verses, 10 and 11, and I'll also, of course, read verse 12. Remember, this is God's inspired word. Because it's inspired, it's God-breathed. That means it's without error. So here as I read God's authoritative word. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, you are the king of heaven and earth, and you have sent your son to die for us. Please now send your spirit that we might understand your word and apply its truth to our lives. We have been enriched by the reading and the considering of this 53rd chapter of Isaiah. As we conclude with these final verses, please Bring glory to yourself through the growth and faith of your people. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so we come to the last verses of this wonderful, magnificent chapter. And there are a lot of big words that you see on the outline to describe the concepts that are revealed here. And I think rather than avoid the terms, let's see what they mean in the context of Scripture. This is where we get these words and these concepts. But to make it very simple, as an introduction, and I'll come back on the conclusion, I want to ask you a question. Does anyone here sin? Does anyone here, like me, need an advocate? Well, John, talking to new believers when he writes 1 John, says this, 
my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We know from Scripture, from our study here and through the whole of Scripture, that we have a substitute, the faithful servant of Jehovah, as described in chapter 53. We have a mediator, the anointed one, the Messiah. We have an advocate, the Christ of God. We have one who makes intercession for us, Jesus, our great high priest. Isaiah 53 is about the finished work of Christ for his people, primarily. That's the main message of what we have in Isaiah 53, the basis for our salvation, the work of Christ. We are saved because of the work of Christ credited to us by belief, by faith, by trust, by resting in this. That's that's the main message. But what we'll see in the last verse is this finished work of Christ is the basis for Jesus' ongoing ministry. It's not as though it's done and over, we just look back at it. It's the basis for how Jesus intercedes for you with the Father. The reason he intercedes for us sinners is because of his credibility or what he has provided in his finished work in which the Father delights. The Father delighted so much in the work of Christ for his people that he raised him again and he seated him at his right hand. And and it's not that Jesus desperately runs to the Father to intercede for us sinners. It's with boldness to the Father he reminds, and this is in human terms so we understand it, reminds the Father that we are under his blood. And the Father delights in those who are under his Son's blood. The finished work of Christ on the cross is the basis for Jesus' ministry for his people now and will be forever. Remember, when Jesus rose again, he rose with holes in his hands, holes in his feet, a hole in his side, and he'll have them for eternity. So we'll always know the basis for us being right with God. We'll never, ever escape that. We'll always know we are only right with the Father because of the finished work of Christ. And now, even now, he intercedes for us. The finished work of Christ on the cross is the eternal basis for Jesus' intercession. His finished work on the cross is what Christ constantly draws upon to declare our righteousness with the Father, who loves to hear it. Our focus will be on verse 12, but I want to recap the first verses in this last section, verse 10 and 11, so we can be reminded what Christ has done, what this ongoing reference point for Jesus' current work is, what he has finished. There's a bunch of big words here, and I, I want you to know them all. We shouldn't shy away from words that are biblical or scriptural or describe concepts in the Bible, and these certainly uh, can be characterized this way. What has Christ done? Well, throughout chapter 53, we've seen him do all these things, and they're captured again in verse 10 and 11. Propitiation, resurrection, satisfaction, justification, and exaltation. This is a bit of a recap of what the servant has accomplished. Notice how these verses reference these things. First, propitiation. Hopefully you remember. It's a, it's a big word to mean appeasement, to appease God for what is owed to him because of our sins against him. Verse 10, the second part. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's propitiating offering. It appeases God's wrath by his righteous offering. In verse 11, and he shall bear their iniquities. The word propitiation carries the idea of appeasement or satisfaction towards God. It's a two-part act. 
involving the appeasing the wrath of the offended person and also being reconciled to them. He put himself in our place to take God's punishment due to us. He bore our iniquities himself in our place and for us. This action of Christ appeased God's wrath towards us. And we know that God accepts this because of the second concept alluded to, resurrection. As part of God's acceptance of the servant's sacrifice, notice the last part of verse 10. He shall prolong his days. It's a slighting and quick reference. It's not the only place we would look in the Old Testament to see the prophecy of Jesus being raised again. But just a few verses earlier, the description of what Messiah did for us, he was cut off from the land of the living. Now we come here to verse 10, he shall prolong his days. This is part of the exaltation of Christ. It's the beginning of the exaltation of Christ. He raises him again to live forevermore. Verse 10 says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We see now the blessing of God upon the servant who suffered for us. This is now transferring from the suffering servant to the exalted interceding servant. Also the concept of satisfaction in verse 11. His soul he should see and be satisfied. The son delighted in doing the father's will. He was satisfied with the father's will. The son was satisfied with the mission to satisfy the father's righteous requirements. The son was satisfied to accomplish the father's mission to be the substitute for his people. To be satisfied with the son's payment, it would have to be unto death. Verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant. Jesus looked to what his death would accomplish, and he was satisfied with the result, and the father was satisfied. Justification. Another biblical concept that we see throughout Whether the word is always used, the concept is clear. Verse 11, the second part, to make many to be accounted righteous. To be right with God, that's what it is to be justified. That's the simple definition, to be right with God. What does it take to be right with God? Is there a more important question? It takes the work of Christ, the perfected work of Christ. We must trust in it. And his righteousness is accounted to us. This is how we're justified. The death of Jesus did not only appease the Father's righteous wrath, it also made us adopted sons and daughters through the crediting of his righteousness to us. Verse 11, once again. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So our justification before God is based on the payment of Christ's death and the gift to us of his righteousness. His death took away our sin and appeased God's wrath but more was required. To be accepted by God, to have fellowship with God, it required a righteousness we cannot conjure. It's Christ. This is why God will never, ever turn you away if you trust in him. He he accepts you because of the righteousness of Jesus, not because you have become righteous on your own or you've now done good things and he loves you for those. He always loves you for one reason. His son's righteousness credited to you. He will never leave you or forsake you on this basis. Payment for sin is one thing, but acceptance for God is another. Propitiation, justification, and adoption, all these things. There are many more words 
and they're all important words. And the more you know them, the more you know what God thinks of you, what God has done for you, the deeper you'll grow. So when the times of blessing come, you'll know how to handle those. When the times of difficulty come, you'll know how to handle those. You'll know the God from whose hand it comes. Exaltation. Verse 10, the last part. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Because of the the perfect offering that the Father delights in, he will give prosperity to his Son insofar as the fruit that will be yielded. Those who will come to him, all that the Father gives him, he will not lose one of them. And the Father will see to this, and all will prosper in the Lord Jesus' hand. Verse 12, the first part. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. The picture is of a conquering military general coming back, and the king who sent him out is giving him all sorts of stuff because he's so delighted in the victory that he has brought. This is the exaltation of the servant of Jehovah, Messiah. He will be given a reward by God. He will be exalted. Why the reward? Verse 12 again. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He accomplished for the transgressors complete satisfaction. Complete provision of salvation, and the Father rewards him. In Romans 8, and I'll return there in a moment, listen to Paul's description. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, Paul says, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, present tense, in an ongoing way, interceding for us. That's what he's doing right now, interceding for us. And that brings us to the culmination of Isaiah 53, verse 12. What Christ is doing now. Verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The intercessory ministry of Christ, brothers and sisters, it is multifaceted. When you sleep, he's still interceding. When you sin, he's still interceding. And thank him for that. He's our substitute, our mediator, our advocate, the one who intercedes for us. To intercede is to go between two parties, to entreat, to argue, to plead with one for the other. That's what intercession means. The intercession of God's servant began in his earthly ministry. In the most powerful passage, I think, with Jesus' words, Spoken so clearly, John chapter 17. He begins that chapter by praying for the disciples who would be scattered and would struggle until they were witnesses of the resurrection and became apostles. But at the end of that chapter, he pauses and starts to pray for us. Yes, us. Those who would believe through the witness of the apostles. And he intercedes for us. He argues before the Father on our behalf. This is even before he goes to the cross. A bit of this, John 17. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about the apostles and us believing. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He intercedes for us, and in this case it's in the form of a prayer. Intercession doesn't only mean prayer. But in this case, he's interceding out loud for those who will believe. This is the so-called high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's now our mediator, the priest. 
the intercession of Messiah continued of all places on the cross. It says in Luke 23, we know he's intervening for us on the cross, yet he speaks words of intercession as well. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Interceding for us, even on the cross, while he's making payment for us. Christ's intercession involves his cross work. His cross work gives him the credentials to intercede for us in an ongoing way. Back to the passage I read in Romans. Listen to the context now. Romans 8, verse 33 and following. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, in case anyone's thinking, well, if we're God's chosen, I believe some, that they, no one can bring a charge against us because, you know, we're special, because we, we've proven somehow. That's not the basis for why we can be sure. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of these can. John Flavel, the great Puritan writer, said several things that are worth remembering about the intercessory ministry of Jesus. Flavel said, proper to Christ is an intercession with God for us in his own name and upon the account of his own proper merit. Flavel goes on, and thus to make intercession is the peculiar and incommunicable prerogative of Jesus Christ. None but he can go in his own name to God. Nobody can go to God in their own name, only through Christ. Jesus himself can stand before the Father on our behalf and intercede for us. Flavel says, Christ performs his intercession work in heaven, not by a naked appearing in the presence of God only, but also by presenting his blood in all his sufferings to God as a moving plea on our account. Our larger catechism captures well this ministry of Christ's intercession, answering the question, how does Christ make intercession. Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven, in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them, and procuring for them quiet of conscience, notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness to the throne of grace, in acceptance of their persons and services. Do you know that there are accusations made against you? First of all, the world makes accusations against those who name the name of Christ. They accuse you of many things. And the son sits at the side of the father and pleads his blood and says those accusations are false. They have no weight. They have no impact because my blood prevails. Do you know that your own flesh makes accusations against yourself? How is that so? When you sin, 
you're making an accusation that you don't believe. Your outward action, my outward action when I choose sin is that I'm not choosing Christ in that moment. But because he's chosen you and he's given you rest in Christ's finished work, even when you sin, Jesus intercedes for you even then to the Father, he's mine, she's mine. But he's sitting, he's mine. Accusations come from the devil, the accuser himself. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. And Jesus is the advocate of the brethren. And the accuser's accusations cannot stand against the blood of Christ. Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it apply to all believers, answering all accusations against them. So the larger catechism wonderfully captures the scripture's teaching. The book of Hebrews, all about how Jesus fulfills the pictures of intercession in the Old Testament, the pictures of mediation in the Old Testament, the pictures of substitution in the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is the book that captures it all best. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews, verse 23. Listen to God's word here. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Christ doing right now? He's seated at the right hand of God, exalted and ruling. And from his position near the Father, the Lord Jesus makes intercession for you. How are you able to persevere in your faith in Christ? How are you able to keep keeping on in your walk with Christ? The ongoing intercession of Christ. That's how. Our confession of faith in its 17th chapter captures this wonderfully. This perseverance of the saints, that is your persevering in your belief in Jesus and your walk with him, this perseverance of the saints depends not on their own free will, not because you choose to follow him and you're going to just be faithful. That's not why. But upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchanging love of God, the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. John Flavel, once again, he says, Having completed this sacrifice for us, we come to the other branch of it, consisting in his intercession which is nothing else but the virtual continuation of his offering once made on earth, that being the means of reconciling this, the way and means of his applying to us the benefits purchased by it. He continually reminds a father of the work that's finished and been accepted. Christ's exaltation involves four things. He's resurrected, he's ascended, his session is at God's right hand, and the last part remains, he will come again in glory. Hebrews chapter 9, that great book that I just mentioned, being the picture of all the fulfillments of Christ as our mediator, our advocate, our interceder. Hebrews 9, 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, 
which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to be to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood, blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One of the reasons that we Protestants or Reformed folk do not put Jesus on crosses that we have, like the one we have here, is because he's not on the cross anymore. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father. That's not a fair depiction of who Jesus is. If we were even to do a depiction, that wouldn't be the right one. At the beginning, I brought up to you a passage that I want to refer to again. 1 John 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Does anyone sin here? Does anyone need an advocate? Because we have a substitute. We have a mediator. We have an advocate. We have one who is making intercession for us. Please rest in him. Rest in him alone. Francis Turretin, not given enough credit for being one of the clearest minds of the Reformation, early Reformation age. Listen to what he writes about the intercession of Christ for us. For Christ alone intercedes for us, relying upon his own merit and righteousness, by himself alone and on account of himself, obtains what he seeks, approaches God by himself immediately and without any other intercessor. By himself stands in our place and appears before God. By himself offers to God our persons, our prayers, and our actions. But believers neither rely upon their own merit nor seek to obtain anything by and on account of themselves, but only in the name of Christ. Nor do they dare approach immediately to God without Christ, nor presume to stand in our place before God. Nor can they present to him our persons and prayers, only through Christ. He is the one who intercedes. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he did so with the glorified body that he had on earth. By God's wisdom and design, Jesus' glorified body bore the marks of his crucifixion. Jesus had the holes in his hands and feet and his side, and they still remain. His work on the cross will be the eternal view. And in this way, he intercedes for us. So I close with a picture from the book of Revelation. It's a wonderful picture. It doesn't use the word intercession, but you'll catch that it is exactly how Christ is depicted. Revelation chapter 5, I'll read it, verse 4, and a few verses after. Listen to how our faithful servant of Jehovah intercedes for us. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look upon it. No person could. We cannot be right with God on our own. And that was cause for weeping when John recognizes this vision. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. 
Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll in his seven seals. He's our mediator. He is our advocate. He's the one who intervenes for us. He intercedes for us. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw the lamb standing, and as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. He brings the prayers of the saints as our interceder. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. His bearing... That is bearing Jesus in his glorified body, the marks of his death and his sacrifice. Those wounds he received for our sins on earth are, as it were, still fresh in heaven. As one commentator said, this is a moving and prevailing argument with the Father. The fresh wounds of his Son. Let's pray. Lord God, it is just as Thomas Kelly